welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I have to tell you really quickly that right now, where I'm recording this VO, I am currently in my closet in my flat. And the closet actually, it doesn't have a door, it's just kind of open. So I duct taped two sheets up, um, kind of of varying thicknesses. I'm trying to recreate a legitimate recording studio, but I just wanted to give you all, you know, a mental picture to associate with what you're hearing right now. It's kind of hilarious, but hey, I'm into it. And hopefully it sounds good. I am going to kick off today's episode with the announcement that I alluded to in last week's episode, but this week it is official. I am properly launching my e-newsletter. It's basically a monthly newsletter that includes a roundup of my favorite things that I saw on the internet that month, also my personal updates and things that inspired me. It's going to be quick, fun, hopefully full of lots of inspiration. So sign up for that. The link is in the show notes. Also, if you sign up before January 26th, you are automatically entered into a giveaway contest I'm doing featuring three of my favorite cookbooks. That's right. If you win and I am going to choose the winner at random from the people who signed up for the newsletter, then you will get three of my favorite cookbooks. That includes Rebecca Pepler's Aperitif. I did a video with her recently, if you saw that on my YouTube channel. Also, Chetna Makan's newest book, Healthy Indian, just out. It's actually not technically out just yet, but you will be one of the first people to get it. And um, she was on the podcast, of course, last week, and she was on my YouTube channel too. So love, love what she does and you will receive a signed copy of my very own Avocados cookbook. So sign up. You could get all of those things for free. And thank you so much for caring to sign up. I want to give a big shout out to the women behind the company Current 120, who helped me set up kind of the technical parts of the e-newsletter and helped me come together with a really great launch strategy. Ariel and Shelly, you two are total rock stars. Thank you so much for your help with that. And now let's hop into today's episode. I'm so excited to share today's episode with you all because having this conversation and then re-listening to it, I mean, I took like a page of notes, just like incredible life things to remember. Just a heads up, there is some cussing involved, but hopefully we're all adults here and can listen and handle that. I got so much out of this conversation and I have every confidence that you will too. So now that you've all signed up for my e-newsletter, let's Let's hop right in to the episode. Today's guest is Sam Conniff Allende. He does a lot of things. He's a speaker. You can check him out on TEDx. And he's an entrepreneur. He co-founded Livity, which is a youth-led creative network. He founded that 18 years ago. And through his work there, he's mentored countless young adults all over the world, really. And through that work, he's received accolades from, for example, the Queen no big deal. So in this episode, we talk about not just entrepreneurship and how to stay afloat and thriving as an entrepreneur, but also about that big unreachable term mentor with a capital M and what real mentorship looks like. 
His book, Be More Pirate, is a bestseller and has started a bit of a movement, which you'll hear him respond to in this interview. So this episode is the real deal, y'all. That is to say, it is unedited. (laughs) As you'll hear, Sam challenges me to rebel against my perfectionism and not edit out our fumbles or tongue-tied moments to not give in to my insecurities and edit out any bits that I may perceive to not be super entertaining or not move the conversation forward. This challenge that Sam presented me just goes to show why I think he's so awesome awesome and so worthy of your ear for the next half hour. So without further delay, here is Sam Conniff Allende. Hi, Sam. Hi, Katie. Thank you for joining me on the Keep It Quirky podcast. Thank you for joining me. So I am here at Liberty. You have invited me to your very cool office space. I, I was immediately impressed when I walked in. And then you introduced me to some of the young people who are here. And I just met Simeon. Really? I just asked you if you wanted to have a cup of tea. It's often a test. Sometimes you say, can't meet our young people. You know, not everybody is immediately comfortable with coming to Brixton and then meeting a bunch of young guys they've never met before. You, however, struck up conversations at the fridge and began talking to young people quite naturally. So, And asked, in fact, to be introduced to this young guy working in music management to help share contacts. So you just had a five-minute experience of what's been going on here for more than 15 years. It's very infectious. And in the very brief conversation I just had with Simeon, am I saying his, his name right? He is, yep. Okay. He, is. he was describing to me what he's working on and why he just left a job with a music agency. And it was because he realized that he wasn't living his truth there. To have that kind of a vocabulary at that age is incredible. So Liberty was uh, once summed up by two young guys who came here to see me years after they'd originally came here to tell me how well they were doing. They're both doing incredibly well. And I asked them to reflect on, on what they thought of the place. And they said, Liberty is a transformation engine. Wow. And in terms of this kind of surprising, articulate, ambitious, imaginative nature of young people, my experience over 18 years and hundreds of thousands of young people is that is the norm. And the truly extraordinary thing is that we systematically screw a certain group of young people over from day one until until we until we fucked it up basically (laughs) and limited their opportunities so profoundly um, that they are more likely to be a cost to society than they are a benefit. Um, But typically, opening a few doors and making some honest invitations and providing a trusted space uh, does more for. Not to undermine all the good work that Liberty's done and the successful strategy and everything else, but honestly, often it's about space, trust, safety, and opportunity. And you see young people like Simeon is the norm of the guys who come here. That is so cool. And so Liberty has been doing this for about 18 years now? In the UK and 10 in South Africa. Wow. Okay, cool. And will you give like a really high-level one to two sentence description of Liberty. So we are sat in a great big warehouse in the middle of Brixton. It's like every marketing agency you've ever 
been to if you're unfortunate enough to spend a lot of time in Mark's <laughs> oh, games these, or, or any other you know, exposed bricks and lots of Macs and you know uh, really the thing that makes Liberty outstandingly interesting creative unique and changing the world is because it's filled with these amazing young people and we pretend to be a marketing agency to our clients who pay us and our clients feature Facebook PlayStation Netflix Nike and many other cool brands but what makes Liberty hum is Simeon and the hundreds of other young people who come through here and they share their insight imagination and experience of the world we repackage that and we sell it to our clients and in return we create this unique experience for those young people to launch themselves through the transformation engine and are these young people who are you who are these young people who you're describing are they the demographic that you had in mind are they the people that you were thinking of when you sat down to write your newest best-selling book be more pirate is that is were you like picturing simeon in your mind while you were writing this it's a really good segue um possibly the best um, <laughs> i enjoyed it a lot uh thank you <laughs> yes pretty much so i was leaving liberty i joked all throughout i set liberty up when i was 24 and i was trying to uh, right some wrongs in the world and uh, I joked a lot when people said about the future and what we're going to do. And we, we're not a traditional business. This was never set up to sell. Um, but I did joke that when I was 40, I'd be too old to run a youth project. I turned 42 years ago. And it turns out it wasn't a joke. <laughs> Everyone was expecting me to go. Uh, and I began the process of writing a book as a distraction project to let the new team take over so that I wouldn't be in their shit and to prove some things to myself. I'm not academic, didn't go to university, and I'm mildly dyslexic. And so I kind of wanted to shout, because so much has changed since I started Liberty, and so much hasn't. I'm so impressed with this generation, like beyond belief, and yet I'm absolutely devastated with the way that they're treated, marginalised, overlooked, um, and at the same time as I think we're all feeling a somewhat dismayed by the vacuum of leadership that we see in organisations and in society and also in politics. Yep. These guys is where I find my real source of energy and optimism. So with the total certainty that my book would not be a success and no one would ever read it, I spoke my absolute truth. And yes, so for Simeon, but the same, the young people that I've worked with through our teams in South Africa, uh, the young guys that I mentor in Athens, the reverse diaspora of entrepreneurs going to help prop up the economy there for the last 10 years, uh, young entrepreneurs that I met from Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, Illinois, all across the northern states in those cities that are torn up at the moment. Um, and beyond, from Brazil to Mexico to Bosnia, I worked with young entrepreneurs, tested these ideas and these material with them. So they were all, in my mind, these young modern pirates representing the rebellion that we need. When did this parallel, this metaphor of pirates, when did, that, when did this hit you? So I started writing the book, knowing, knowing these steps, I wanted to move on and it's time for my what next. And I wanted to really kind of champion this change that I see happening around us in, in business as a force for good rather than where I think too often it's been a force, uh, quite a more questionable force. And so I began writing uh, the most boring book on earth. It was called Purpose First. It was hideous. It was this kind of really worthy, hand-wringing, kind of guardian-reading uh, case for a more you know, constructive kind of capitalism. It was fucking hideous. It would have been, like, if there was, I always think if there was, like, a TEDx in Balham, it would have been a talk there, like, as, oh, as an example of how trite it was. Um, Balham is, a, is an area of London, for those of you who don't know. 
It's very nice. I think it was voted <laughs> nicest place in London. Which says a lot, yeah. Yeah. About um, the people who live there. Exactly. And yeah. some, some of my best friends are from Balham. Uh, and they'll, they'll agree with me entirely. Anyway, so this terribly worthy, boring book that wasn't going to do anything except talk to the thousand people who already agreed was well underway. And as you've, you've just seen, my experience of the last 20 years is being with your target audience is, you know, I sit there, you know, look at the guy sat next to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my, the reality is pretty close. So when I started workshopping it or mentoring or with the young entrepreneurs that I work with talking about it, they're like, God, damn, what's happened to you? Where's the, where's the usual energy? You know, where, where, where's all that chat about, you know, astronauts and pirates and stuff? And I, I had a lesson. I had a bit of a, they called out my bullshit. I was trying to be a grown up. I was 40, I was leaving the business that I'd run for nearly 20 years. I was writing a business book, so I had to, you know, I needed to start being serious. You put on the face, yeah. Exactly, yeah, that, that face. <laughs> and the uh, voice, uh, evidently. You know, uh, so the whole book was like very, I was trying to go <laughs> And I took a deep breath and started again and wrote it to them, the guys that I love and admire and respect and I expect so much from. Uh, and that's what began with the metaphor that's pirates because I've used that a lot through my professional life. You know, here are some rebels that we can all kind of, you know, admire in a weird way. And I began the research process. And in the research, something happened. Um, between the Greenwich Maritime Museum, the British Library, a number of other secondary sources, uh, I found out that the true history of pirates is one that's been hidden from most of us. It was rewritten by the powers that be 300 years ago and has not returned until now. And the true history of pirates makes them very relevant role models to the millennials of the 21st century because indeed they were the millennials of the 18th century. And you give so many examples in your book. I mean, your book is literally full of examples of pirates, the ones back in the day that, you know, we may have heard of and we think of as like the, you know, the Johnny Depp type characters from Pirates of the Caribbean, all the way to more modern pirates, um, Banksy. Mm -hmm. You tell some really great stories of modern day pirates. What what to you kind of exemplifies that and what's a story what's a story you'd like to share with people listening to this so the example of um, the fundamental is someone willing to stand up to the status quo for what they believe in someone who knows values that they hold so deeply they'd be willing to fight for them do you know dear listener three values that you'd be willing to take a punch in the face for or maybe punch someone else in the face for or more than that risk all there is you know, I think we've, we've lost sense with the positive side of rule-breaking. In trying to explain this whole book to my daughter, I took her to the unveiling of the statue of Millicent Fawcett to point out you know, what happens when someone risks their entire life and reputation for what they know is right, even when everyone else says it's wrong. It might take 100 years to get your statue, but we very rarely give statues to people who just follow orders. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a necessary time for these rule-breakers. Um, so that's kind of what I'm defining as a pirate, uh, both then and now. The story that absolutely touches uh, all, all levels of this is a young woman called uh, Katie. She got in touch. Um, am I saying that because you're Katie? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, what? Oh, yeah, it's, oh. it's, it's another Katie. Uh, Katie's rule. I, I want to I hear this one. <laughs> she got in touch early on. She'd read the book. She really found a lot from the framework of it. And when I spoke to her, it was because a friend of hers, a very close friend of hers uh, of Nigerian descent, had been hauled into Yarlswood Immigration Centre on Southampton, which is 
widely reported as a terrible uh, place. Um, and it was under the kind of big nonsense there was earlier in this year around the number of different immigration uh, issues, and her friend was illegally detained. And so she began to build a campaign to get her release. So this individual, one young woman, starts a campaign against the Home Office, against an immigration centre, to defend her friend for what she believes is right. Uh, And she uses the framework of the book to mount her campaign. So she tells me this, and obviously I'm like, fucking hell, of course, what can I do? So I did all I could to support her. She was incredibly bold and brave and used the aspects of the book from, you know, really bold and ambitious storytelling to creating the right networks. Her friend was not just freed, but she wrote to me end of last week to say that she's been given her indefinite leave to remain and now they've decided they're going to up the campaign even further and shut the fucking place down what she is a young pirate willing to take on the biggest of foes for what she believes in use the powers that pirates did you know all of their enemies were way way far bigger than they were networked organization finding great ways to tell larger than life stories and be willing to rewrite some rules for what's right I mean that that must be exactly what you dreamed would happen with this book, right? P- young people being so inspired by it and and putting it to use. At some, some, at some subconscious level, but I was way surprised. I was way surprised that anyone even really read it. Uh, really surprised when it started to do quite well. Uh, I don't think I'd have written as honest a shout uh, if I thought it was going to get read, right? Um, and so when I got my, my first uh, message that I received was from another young woman who forwarded me her resignation letter. So I've got halfway through the book, and you know what, you're fucking right. I've had enough. I'm not being me. I'm resigning. I just wanted to let you know, and thank you. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I'm on... I'll show you my... Uh, I have an inbox within my Gmail of the rebellions. Really? I'm heading towards my 400th wow. resignation, <gasps> activism, campaign began all sorts of interesting way people have in- interpreted this and have found if I summarise them all you have articulated frustrations I felt in such a sharp point I can now act. Yeah and that's so cool first of all congratulations that's big I also feel like it would be so easy to take a lot of these principles and to twist them into you know violence I mean violence was obviously a part of the pirate history but you don't advocate for violence right no, you, no. And, and but you manage to take those same the same essence that manifested itself into violence and and inspire another way forward <laughs> with it and I'm do you see yourself as a mentor to all of these people, all of the 400 emails you have in that Gmail inbox, do you consider yourself a mentor to them? No, I consider myself a bit of a letdown to them because I haven't (laughs) replied to them all. Uh, Sorry if you're listening. I've got no chance of getting to the bottom of this inbox and I'm trying to work out the solution because it's not what I expected at all. Um, You know, I've worked in marketing, you know, albeit social enterprise marketing, so I'm as guilty as the next agency of... (sighs) You know, using the word movement in total bullshit ways. You know, yes, we'll make a movement out of your fizzy drink company. Uh, and now here it is. You know, here's like the dawning foothills of a real movement. And no, I have not, I have not f- adequately prepared for it. I'm totally surprised by it. For the first few months, I was in disbelief about it. And it's only now I've started really speaking to people. I've started doing a bit of mentoring. I've even given, uh, I'm starting to work out how I can give a, part, a portion of the book sales profits to some of these guys. So I've made my first grant award to them. I'm just about getting my head around it. 
and I've, I'm trying to raise some money so I can employ someone who will work alongside me as both a community manager. So we can, I've been asked to do meetups, to turn it into stories, a podcast. That's why I was asking for some of your mentoring and advice. So yeah, I'm absolutely because it's coming out in multiple territories, right? So this this is this is part of the part of the truth of success isn't it you have to watch out what you wish for most of us are making it up and when you view other people's success even though you know you've made it up it looks like they've done it perfectly and then when you really are right out and out in the middle of the mess which precedes any success i don't know what to do with it wow you're you're speaking such truth right now about success and and perceptions of success and what happens when you reach the success you wanted um you mentioned earlier that you have struggled with dyslexia. You do slash have struggled with dyslexia. You just wrote a book, though. This was this is your first book. I imagine that it probably won't be your last, given the success of it. And did you feel like an imposter when you went to write your first book, like with the issues that you have oh, mentioned? Yeah. Uh, I, I still, I've just about stopped looking over my shoulder when I'm introduced as a, now we've got Sam Conniff, author. You're like, where's the author? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really want to meet an author. I've got loads of questions for them. Um, so yes, there's, there's, there's a sense of disbelief to it all. Yeah, truth is, imposter is, how often do you feel like an imposter? All the time. I, I thought, I wondered if it was a gendered issue, actually. I was very curious about how you were going to respond to this. And do you think it's a gendered issue? I think that we ultimately live, you know, you, you, it's impossible not to be cognizant of the institutionalized patriarchy around us. So I think there is a different experience between genders as to places you go um, and how you have to accommodate that and how you deal with that. That's unavoidable. And I'm grateful that there's more of an honest conversation going on. So yes, but I don't think it's exclusive. No, not at all. Um, and I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that my, my, one of my mentors, I've got two amazing mentors, he came to see me probably two years before I made the jump into doing the book and transitioning from Liberty. And as he left that day, he said, you know you are treading water, don't you? And Liberty was super award-winning, more than 100 full-time staff, thousands of people we'd see, young people we'd see, you know, accolades, the Queen had given us all, you know, we're doing fucking great work, and here's this guy calling bullshit on me that I'm treading water. What? <laughs> what? And he was right. I, at that moment, there, would, there wouldn't have been a moment when I felt like I was experiencing imposter syndrome because I knew what I was doing. I'd, been, I'd done my 10,000 hours, right? I knew, the, I knew the drill. And it was true. There was a laziness to it. And who... So there is a, where, no matter what you're doing or where you are, what it is you're trying to do, if you're not in some degree regularly out of your depth, then you're probably not pushing yourself. Interesting. Enough. So that's actually looking at the other side of the 10,000 hours theory, right? So it's like after you do the 10,000 hours, what do you need to do to keep yourself on edge so that you can keep performing? What's your first hour of the next thing? Yeah. You know, and if you're not regularly feeling a little bit like your imposter, then are you learning? Mm. The moment I come home and my ears are pinned to the back of my head, like I've been going through a hurricane, I'm learning at such a pace. I'm in free fall, and it's beautiful. You know, I have no idea how to publish a book. Now i kind of got a bit of an idea. I've loved every single second. Every day has been filled with learning and experience because I haven't got 
a clue. There's no, there's no underpinning of this, and it's. Just, I feel incredibly lucky at my stage and, and age to have that depth and, uh, of learning adventure again. So, have you reached out to mentors of yours for, like, regarding all of this, regarding all of the publishing questions you may have? Publishing's weird. It's the only industry, and I've worked across several, uh, where there isn't a mentoring culture. And I've asked several times, can I be introduced to an author who's two or three books on from me? Um, and I, I now do. I've now created two networks, or been, it helped create two networks um, of authors. But unless we'd instigated it ourselves, there's not a mentoring culture that I've come across anyway in publishing. So it's something the whole industry needs to learn from most other sectors where it's commonplace, right? I imagine it, with, amongst the YouTubers, there's a really supportive community. Um, there, Yeah, there definitely is. I think that the issue of a mentor like in all bold capital letters is <laughs> can kind of feel overwhelming and i think yeah that yeah. like i have i i have several people who i consider mentors at different times throughout my career but i don't have and there have been times in my career where i felt like what's wrong with me that i don't have one person who i like always go to or get a coffee with once a month and for me that's not the reality but i have had it's kind of like a rolling yep. rolling ball of mentors if you will no i th- i think that's very sensible i i um i think i have a take on this because i've helped so many young people find mentors that a good mentor is someone who can look back at a place that you are looking forward to. So in Simeon's case, you know, someone who's run a music brand partnerships business for two or three years, who's probably still in their 20s, uh, that's where Simeon wants to be, and they can look back. And you know, So you're, you're, you're minimising the number of times you have to, have to fall off the cliff to learn your lessons, and there's someone there who can point to it. So the mentor that I refer to is still, you know, 10 years ahead of me doing the kind of things I'd like to do, so he stayed relevant. I really like the idea of the... Uh, personal boardroom. It's not my idea. I remember seeing a, a speech on it once, and I have a personal boardroom much like yours. Very few people know that they're on it, <laughs> yeah. which makes it really easy to sack them from my board. Right. Uh, there's a specialist in finance. There's someone who, you know, there's a number of different specialist teams, and if I need to, there's someone that, that you can go to and ask about topics, and you can update them because, you know, now I'm an author, I want some different kind of mentors. But yeah, it should be a team, and it should be something consistent. And I. We over-formalize it. The best mentoring relationships I know would never use the word mentor. Right. Okay. Thank you for putting your finger on that. The fact that the vocabulary even can be misleading. Yeah. Yes, you can have mentors without feeling like this like weight on your shoulders, yeah, yeah. like mentor with a capital M. Try and think of it more as an adjective than a noun. Hmm. Could you, I'm, you know, when I say, can you mentor me with a podcast, I don't mean you, you know, have to subscribe to three years of showing me <laughs> how to make my podcast a success. To give you my firstborn child. <laughs> all of that is on you. Yeah. No, no, just show me how this little thing works. Right. And, you know, and just the chat we had beforehand. Yeah. So, yeah, as an adjective, I think, is more useful than I am. So you have two little girls. I do. Yes. And, and a wife. Yes, indeed. And um, your wife is Mexican. She certainly is. So how did you two meet? <laughs> this is good. Um... I met her on the Charing Cross Road, by chance, on the 30th of June, 2007. Walking Aww. up the Charing Cross Road with my friend Dave, and we were having an argument as to whether or not Dave should could do online dating, which was in its early days back then. And we decided that we would settle the argument by asking the next woman who walked past. Stop it. It's a true story. This is 
story. And she took to Dave because Dave is really gorgeous and he's got this amazing eyelashes. Oh, Dave. Oh, Dave. And so she was kind of flowing with Dave and Dave was flowing with her. I got a bit bored. And a <laughs> drunk woman crashed out of Leicester Square and she must have been a drunk angel because she gave me a white rose tacky as hell like and said, she's gorgeous. You better give this to her. And so I did. And that, the intention came back to me and we had a bit of a chuckle and I gave her a business card. How cliche is that? Uh, and then dragged Dave off because we had we had matters to attend that Saturday night. We had, we had an agenda, uh, and then I stayed in touch with her. And it was the beginning of like Facebook, so we were Facebook friends. But you only had two or three pictures on Facebook, and it wasn't quite what it became very quickly. And I, my memory was that she was kind of short and a bit plain. I, I think I was because I didn't like the fact she'd like Dave, right? Right, exactly. And I was having Isn't a memory r- funny. Exactly, it was like reverse <laughs> beer goggles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. At the time, Liberty was still relatively new and I was enjoying my life as a social entrepreneur and I'd just been made an, an ambassador for the government and we won some awards. So I was full, full of my own ego and having a high old time with it all. Uh, but after about three months of having this just inbox daily with this very, very funny, the only person who spoke to me like she did, calling it, you know, totally seeing through any of my bullshit, uh, and I was given a ticket to a tango tea dance on a Sunday and even though I remembered her being a bit short and plain, she was the only girl I wanted to meet by that point because she made me laugh every day. I just thought, sod it. You know, she's the one. I f- fell in love with her, really, over her broken English and funny messages. <laughs> and so we met, and the tea dance was at one, so we met on the South Bank at 11. I had a bottle of champagne and some croissants and some orange juice. Uh, and then over the bridge came this electric Mexican woman. And I was thinking, fuck me, I wish I was meeting her. What? <laughs> And turns out my memory was completely wrong, and my wife is the most beautiful woman I've ever been in a room with. I have a feeling that our listeners on this podcast are as like flabbergasted as I am. That is awesome. What a great story. That's quite good, isn't it? That's a really good story. Okay, so the reason that I made this seemingly tangential it was a good lump. jump good leap. to yeah, yep. <laughs> leap to your gorgeous wife was because I get the sense from just speaking with you that having the family that you do is of the utmost importance to you, and I'm wondering how that has affected your career. That is a very good question. Um, There's no... It's fucking hard. And it's full of compromises and sacrifice. Something has to, you can't do everything. And my daughters mean everything, but my career means everything. I really want to make a difference in this world, and it's been all about making a difference. And I never, ever want them to suffer the loss that I did. And they're going to grow up in a very difficult and complex world, which is biased against them both for their age for a while and ultimately their gender, and that's not about to change overnight, and I want them to be strong, confident girls. Uh, And then have a meaningful relationship with my wife that isn't exhausted and is romantic and has got all the... And that's just fucking hard. And so something has to give, and it can't be your own sanity, you know, or time for you. So it's been extremely hard, and I think uh, I'm lucky that my wife is pretty strong-minded, so it would be very easy with all of my kind of... I could tell a very good narrative of why it's so important I'm so busy. 
she calls bullshit on that. Um, I said very early on when our first daughter was born, I wanted to be home most evenings a week. I didn't want to be a weekend dad. And so that was very difficult for some of my close colleagues. So I used to, oh, yeah, let's work every night. Yeah, the pitch is on. Yeah, there's that. To see me suddenly just get up and walk out at five o'clock became really difficult for some people. And fair enough, because they'd worked incredibly hard for me and with me. Um, And then how the fuck do you do all of this? You know, where I am right now. How do I make this movement work? I've just closed the book deal in the USA. I, I've had this amazing correspondence from someone today. And now I've just, just about raised it, making it home. And, and now my, it's bath time. But it's two small children. It's bath time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Scarlett wants to tell me about what they have, have for lunch at nursery. And Frida wants to shout and gurgle. You know, try, try and uh, bring yourself down there and not be distracted and not be worrying about all of this shit. It's fucking hard. Does it help keep your life quirky, though? Does it lighten you up when you need to be lightened up? Or are you like, no, I don't want to be lightened up. I'm getting stuff done. You, you can't fight it. The biggest mistake you can make is try and do both. If you are at home and you've got the kids for whatever reason, try and work and have the worst day on earth hmm. you know or if you get home fuck it get in the bath with them you know and you know <laughs> just get the extra bubble bath out and just get down and be part <laughs> of that moment and enjoy it because it's never going to happen again and they'll be old before you know it then the world is good so I try very very hard and I learned this from a guy who used to be head of the prison service and he told some terrifying stories that he saw and he had a seemingly lovely family his story was that he'd get home every night and when the key went in the lock turned right that was the mental switch. And he'd leave everything on the doorstep. And then you get inside, you're on all fours, you're being an elephant, you know, you're, you're dealing with whatever's gone on, your wife's probably exhausted, there's a whole bunch of shit in the house. And that's the life now, that is what you're doing, so enjoy it. Don't well, begrudge either side. I love that the idea and kind of the visualization of when you physically turn the key, that that also turns it off in your head. And I think that it applies beyond parenthood, which I may one day experience myself, but right now for me as an entrepreneur, which is obviously a role you also know very well, I think that that is just as important because work never stops when you're working for yourself and for something you believe in. And so the necessity of, of switching that just to enjoy life. Yes. So do you know what to do with yourself when you have an evening off? No, if, if, my, if my husband is traveling for work, I don't stop working. Right. But, and so my switch is when, when my husband goes to work, I start working. Right. And when my husband comes home from work, I stop working. And that is literally my indication. Okay. But then, you know, I can also get up and go to a yoga class in the middle of the day, which is what I do most days of the week, Good. which I, which is, but it's like, it still is, it's a routine for me in order to keep it consistent. Okay. So I have a couple of checks for a healthy kind of balance around this. Please. Uh, yes. So one is, do you know what to do with yourself on any, if, if all your plans suddenly stopped and you were just alone for an evening, do you know what to do with yourself? Work. <laughs> you failed that oh, test. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Are you able in the middle of the day to just stop everything you're doing and go to a yoga class? Yes. It would seem so. Um, you know, this is just a really, it's, it's hard, isn't it? And we're trying, you try to do as much as you can and create as much as you can, but we're in a bit of, you know, the paradox of choice. There's simply so much you can choose and then it's so hard to get lots of stuff done. I think the challenge of our age is editing our choices. 
editing our choices. That's great. Were there, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast. Were there any other items on the checklist to mention? Oh, um, yeah, you know, we all know this game and we, we, most of us have seen others burn out by it. We know how hard it is. Um, are you feeling sorry for yourself? Hmm. Uh, treachery self-doubt treachery but if you're routinely feeling sorry for yourself something's wrong you know do you know the early warning signals and do you have a resilience plan in place resilience comes from obvious places but usually by the time you're talking about it it's too late resilience is real time mine is I think it's always a quadrant of four one is personal the friendships or the family or just the stuff that gives you energy you know do you have a plan do you know that you see them once a month or once a week whatever you need then of course there's health nothing has a bigger impact on mental health than physical health do you get exercise two or three times a week uh then there's the just the work stuff you on top of it do you have a coach you know do you know what you're doing do you have a plan and then there's the development stuff do you have a mentor do you have a mentee are you on a board? You know, do you have a, those kind of things around you? Uh, I once broke it into the four quadrants with three things in each, kind of what I just listed. And I guarantee you, I can spot the people who will score 10 or 12 when they come in a room. I'll get them to do it. Anybody who scores less than three typically cries because you suddenly realize what you're carrying. Hmm. And looking after yourself when you're in the midst of it and you're brought into your own narrative of how you're changing the world and doing this grand thing is well and good. But if you are an entrepreneur and you're out there, then chances are there's a bunch of other issues going on. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all, we all have an ego. We all think we can do this thing. This comes from somewhere. If you have had less than six hours sleep for the last three nights, then my friend, you might as well have just drunk a bottle of wine for how good you're going to be doing your finances. Uh, except a bottle of wine would be much more fun. We are not very good at looking after ourselves, but statistically, we're up there with like the top five high-stress uh, jobs alongside like armed forces in a conflict zone and high-performance athletes for the amount of cortisone that goes around your body, which destroys everything from your sex drive to your teeth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I believe it. Being an entrepreneur is hard, hard work. Um, and I think a lot of what it comes down to with motivation is choosing the right thing to rebel. Yes. So going back to your book, yep. and the question is, what is your rebellion and really putting your finger on something that makes you tick? Well, I, I take that in two parts. So first of all, I think it is, is choice, absolutely. And we as entrepreneurs, you do. You choose your mood. You have a choice whether today is going to happen to you or whether you're going to happen today, every single fucking day. And that choice extends to how you're going to be feeling a couple of months from now and the choices you make today exactly inform that. Then back to the rule-breaking. So my... My view on this is that rule-breaking is the next essential 21st century skill. You know, a few years ago, it was digital skills and getting your heads around some of that shit, and then it's been really around mental health and resilience and well-being now. Next up is professional rule-breaking. And by professional rule-breaking, I mean, A, nearly getting fired at least once a year <laughs> as, a, as a positive indicator that you're going close enough to the edges to create real change. Uh, I mean, change that isn't permission-based, you know, the usual that we're familiar with. I have a great idea. Send me some slides so that I can suffocate it in an email chain. No, I mean real change. I've got a great idea. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Wow. Rules, as I've studied them, outside of regulations, like, you know, 
I shouldn't stab someone outside or steal their money. The rules that we mainly follow day to day are either set by power. I'm the boss, so I've said do it like this. Perspective. This is how I think it should be done. But mainly by precedent. That's how it has been done. And our great challenge is to not believe anymore that the way things are is the way things have to be. And the entrepreneurs and, and that are listening now will know this. You know, it's natural. Many of us will think of ourselves as pirates or rule breakers. It becomes relevant to us. So then the question is, well, what's the next level up? You know, we can't disassociate any of our entrepreneurial business challenges from the biggest challenges that we face. The erosion of democracy, the destruction of environment, the, the cataclysmic events taking place around us. And if in some way, shape or form, we're not pushing in that direction to a better place then guys, you're wide of the target and you need to widen the aperture. This is all of our mess and we're all in it. And it needs the rule breakers amongst us to go back to that point earlier. Statues aren't made for people who are just following orders. So if we are, this is a community of rule breakers listening and we're wondering about the challenges that are worth staying up all night for and investing our lives in, then there's no shortage of them. We need a new set of rules. And the millennials of the 18th century who sat out on those boats fought for fairness and equality and justice. And I, I, I look now out for the ideas that big. Some of the stuff we're fighting for is petty, minor, the, the, the launch of some new technology, or can we cash in on a trend? And it's not the thinking we need. And so the, the entrepreneurial mindset certainly is one that can rise to the occasion and then be ready to break those fucking rules from the heart if we need to. This conversation has just come beautifully full circle, so I am going to wrap it up there. Sam, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and I have one last question for you. Oh, oh, snap. Okay, my last question for you is, how do you keep it quirky? Hmm. I think we've probably already touched on it. It's these guys. It's the guys that I share my space and life with. You know, uh, I would have written a boring book and I ended up writing a, writing a brilliant book because I was sat in a workshop of, you know, really, really smart young guys trying to change the world. Uh, I've just embarked on the first draft of Be More Gangster. Uh, <laughs> Wait, seriously? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and it's based on the experience that I've had of working with ex-offenders and drug dealers and some of the smartest young entrepreneurs I've ever met who, when given the chance, have launched consecutive successful businesses. We fail to learn from the edges. We fail to observe that real innovation often takes place in the shadows and outside of the norm, and we think that it takes place in labs or corporate venturing. It does not. And as we are so desperate for answers, I want to do more to shine a light out the dock. Beautiful. What's your question for me? What rule are you going to break? So I have thought about this before because I read your book, of course. The thing for me is our reliance on technology and our constant consumption of social media. And, and given that my job lives on social media and is reliant on social media, every day I try to... Um, Every day I struggle with trying to break that rule yep. and, uh, and, and redefining my relationship to social media and not letting it control me and, and trying to find a way to be successful in this industry um, without caring about the numbers. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. 
That is a fucking challenge. <laughs> challenge and a half. I think the world needs to know your new rule on that one. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do my best to spread. I'm going to do my best to spread the word on that one. How about your other rule of not editing this podcast? Oh my gosh, stop it. That, that, literally Come the... On. <laughs> Come on. But Sam, I literally yeah, no, I just there's, tripped there's, over my words yeah, two yeah, yeah. seconds let, 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 Let's let the world know. Katie's really interested. She's a bit obsessive and she has a background in production. Obviously, as a successful YouTuber, has been editing herself on a regular basis. We were just discussing whether or not the unedited version that feels like you've just dropped in on a conversation has benefits over the tightly cropped version. So my suggestion is Katie breaks her own rule and lets this be the unedited one. And see how it goes. Unedited conversation. Oh my gosh! I made Sam more slip ups than you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's true. Um, well, you know what? Yeah. You've got yourself a deal. Yes. All right. And on that note, I'm going to stop recording so I can't mess up anymore. <laughs> Bye, Sam. Thanks for joining. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Funky Brian for the Keep It Quirky theme song. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Leave me um, some feedback. Leave me a, either a tweet or an email, keepitquirkypodcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at QKatie. I would like to know what you guys thought of that unedited interview, where it was a little more free-flowing than some of my more edited conversations. Would really love to hear what you think of that. And I'll see you all back here next week. In the meantime, don't forget to keep it quirky.